You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. Proven in this episode, a conversation that covers nihilism all the way to taking a bath, Alua Arthur is living proof that leaning into death and dying can make us more alive than ever before. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to You're Going to Die, the podcast. Boy, this took a lot to go through and get to, for which I am grateful. (laughs) This has been kind of a dark, deep dive of a week for me. I sort of disappeared in the midst of everything in between workshops and memorials and open mic spaces and podcast recordings and really felt dragged into a place that I can at least say I have the sense was needed, maybe like a sacred dark place that has meaning. It wasn't just meaningless and hopeless and all-consuming, but maybe you can relate to those times. The difference being with this last stretch that I was aware of needing to go through it. So then drawing boundaries, I guess, between how much I'm taking on and feeling and being clear about what exactly is affecting me and letting things be enough so that I have the motivation to get that walk through the redwood trees or do that yoga, sit in that meditation, read that book until I can come back up for air. That's what it has been feeling like this density of what we do with our workshops and our online open mics and the kind of space we hold, feeling it pretty intensely and then so needing to kind of go through my own personal stuff before I can come back (laughs) from whatever that is to record an intro for a podcast. But I got to the place, still feeling some of what this dark week has been like for me, this dark weekend, let's say, still feeling that, knowing I need to get this done, and actually having the podcast help pull me out of it, help help me come back up for air, and listening to the interview that I'm about to share with you, it's really a conversation, It's it's not even an interview. Listening to the conversation with Alua Arthur from Going With Grace, it was like last week I needed to talk to her and really be emotional with her and laugh a lot and feel connected and really seen and understood. I really feel that about her. There's a way that her work and how she came into it, it feels really familiar to me and aligns with my story in a lot of ways. But getting to have that talk with her last week and then going through this weekend like I went through, like you might go through versions of sometimes right now, especially, 
it was so cool to come back and get to like be in this conversation and listen to it like I'm just an audience, uh, a pair of ears that needs it. And so I felt it bring me back here. And also the significance of it kind of kept me a little bit paralyzed, still feeling some of the dark stuff that, that, that was clinging on me and still does a little bit. That cycle of going through something that, that is hard and yours alone and makes you feel alone. And getting to return to something that reminds you you're connected and you're alive. And that's what it felt like to listen to this. And I hope that's what it offers you today. I don't have a lot more to say about it. I want you to, if you don't already know Alua Arthur, get that she works in this conversation of death and dying as a death doula, an ordained minister, um, it, she, she, this is her wording, a recovering lawyer. And we talk a little bit about why she uses that wording in, in our conversation, a perpetual seeker of nothing to be found and a founder of going with grace. Alua understands that the idea of death can be intimidating and does work that can shift that perspective and allows others to view life through that lens, the the lens of, of death. And she believes that with proper care and practice, a sense of calmness can be achieved and that there are important lessons within death. And we talk a lot about that, like how big a thing to offer and what that means, who, 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 who would be drawn to that offering and, and why. And what does it mean to get it? But also, what does it mean for us, like, say, Alua, to do that kind of work and then also take care of herself just being a human being who goes through the dark stuff, too? That there's no way that me doing you're going to die keeps me removed at all from needing the stuff it offers. That I'm drawn to this work because originally... I needed to be taken care of in this way. And um, so we talk a lot about that in this conversation. I'm so glad that this conversation exists. And a big shout out to Nick Jaina, um, our producer and sound engineer, for just being so caring and uh, attentive with his edits and, and really not only capturing the heart of it, but like really creating the heart of a conversation like this one with his his attention. So thank you, Nick. I think that's all for now. I'm so glad to just sit back and likely listen to this very episode alone for myself repeatedly. And I hope it means as much to you. Here is my conversation with Going With Grace's Alua Arthur. It's one of the things I love about my work, which is that I get to meet people exactly where they are all the time. And when people are looking at their mortality, either in a very real way because they have an illness that they know they're going to die from or that they're just really starting to contemplate it. We, we try to play the games and try to keep the mask on and try to stay cool or on top of it or I got it or I know what's going on. But at some point that breaks down and my, in my role as a death doula, my job is to be a non-medical support person, holistic support person for the dying person and the family through the process. 
And that necessarily means that whatever it is that they are grappling with, I try to support them through, either by just bearing witness to their pain and their struggle, or by finding some practical solutions and resources to support them through. We're not fixers by any means. I think a lot of people, you know, think sometimes that they they have something to give to make a situation better, and I'm using air quotes. But one thing that's super humbling to me about being in the face of death and grief all the time is that there's nothing to fix. You know, I'm just there to be with it. If there is a solution that I can provide or a resource that can that can make things go a little smoother, by all means, I'll do that. But I don't come in with the intention to fix anything. I'm just there to fulfill needs as they are perceived and expressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm looking at your website on the about page under the mission is that it, answering the question, what must I do to be at peace with myself so that I may die gracefully? And what what I, I feel a lot about all of this and and acknowledgement back at you for how I experience you online and your videos and your work and your posts and, and even just going through this website before our talk, um, just feeling that same 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 excitement and and like place to be that fits with getting to have this this chat with you to connect it back to what it's like to come from a workshop holding space like that i wonder about that question and making space like you do with your work you're asking for people in a way to come not at peace Mm. that they're already maybe having the heartbreak or the grief or the struggle with the dying or the resistance to. And so I'm wondering if you can put words to that, maybe by explaining what even a situation could be like that you've been in where you showed up and it was the, that kind of human being going through loss or in the midst of the loss or the midst of the dying and can you describe your being in that space, even specifically? My, there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. Because when it comes right down to it, there's a couple of different categories that people struggle with creating peace around at the end of life. And I'd say that the question is an invitation to check in as to where we might not have peace and see where we can create it if possible, if creating peace is a goal. Um, so those, the answers to those questions, they're super varied, right? They're as different as every human being. Some are around the spiritual questions. What, if anything happens after I die, some are emotional, relational, if there are anything that's left unsaid in relationships or things that need resolving. Others are about their affairs, the very practical matters, getting their wills together, um, figuring out what to do with their stuff, figuring out how to transfer a title of a vehicle, um, figuring out what to do with all the leftover medications. And some are about not having a life that's fully lived, things that are still left undone. Like, I mean, sometimes it's as huge as writing a book and sometimes it's as small as tasting you know, a milkshake from the place around the corner when they were growing up. So no matter what those desires are, at Going With Grace, we're helping people um, see those through to the best of our ability and to the best of their ability because some things are just not possible at a certain point in time. So 
I mean, for any one of those major needs, sometimes they overlap. Sometimes there's things in different categories that need some attention. Um, here's one example of the woman that I was unclear about what I was going there for. Her daughter had called me and said her mom had a lung disease. And she wasn't yet on hospice, but it was a degenerative disease. And so they were clear this is what she was going to be dying of. Just the timeline was way wonky. Nobody had any idea. And I show up. Um, and she has this notebook and flips it through a couple of pages and starts firing off questions. Well, what is the process of dying like? And, you know, is it going to be painful? And how long is it going to take? And what happens with my body? And, and so on and so on. Questions I had no answers to. I mean, these were like some of the big existential questions, you know, what happens to my legacy after I die? Um, what are people going to say about me? And I was like, I have no clue. And she was a little frustrated because she thought, here I am, an expert, I'm using air quotes, in death coming to show up to help her figure out what death is supposed to be like. And I was like, lady, nobody has these answers. If anybody's got them, you do. You know, so my role there was just to reflect back to her and keep putting the question back on her, which was incredibly frustrating to her. But what I noticed was that she just needed permission to be in the question because she hadn't had it before. You know, she hadn't really faced these things before. And she just needs somebody to say, hey, it's okay that you don't know. None of us know. Now, how do we get comfortable with not knowing? It's a high bar. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really high bar. Yeah. I love that. I, I, I find myself describing the work and the spaces and events that we do. And definitely the conversation is letting ourselves be with the question. I know I, I, I hope that people fill out the, here's the interview um, options, the things I want to talk about. And I hope that people fill in the part where it says, what don't you want to talk about? But I, I, I know you fill this out and I do want to talk about what you don't want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And we'll, talk, <laughs> we'll talk about it in the way that you said you'd be willing to, but I want to, I want to use this, I think as an example and likely part of your answer as to why you don't want to talk about the afterlife, my beliefs in the afterlife. I found over the years with the, you're going to die events that my research and why I don't want to bring that into the space of, say, an open mic or a curated event or even really any part of what we do is because two things. Um, it's like, you know, it, it might do a disservice to being in the dying and being in the death and being in the mortality to spend too much time in the what if, or here's what's gonna, or here's what might happen after you die. Mm -hmm. um, but also that uh, it lets us maybe be in the question more to let that be the unknown that it is or the unspoken that it is. Um, and I'm wondering why when you list the one thing I don't really want to talk about is my beliefs in the afterlife. What is your reason? And does it connect to some of this like question space and anything else you want to say? Yes. It certainly has to do with that question space, which is so beautiful how you put that. And also that I, my work is secular in nature. You know, a lot of people come to death doula work with their ideas about what death is or what it should be or how it should look. And I want to remove all of that and just be uh, an unstreaked mirror for others to see whatever it is that they need to see about themselves or their, their relationship with living and dying. When I put my beliefs in the space, then it 
since a lot of people think of me as an expert because this is the work that I choose to do, it sets up some strange standard about this is what it is and this is what to expect and this is what it might be. When the truth is, I don't know. I got a lot of ridiculous ideas. Sometimes I try to make up the most wild fantasy because since we don't know, why not fill it with something beautiful instead of this dread and gloom and doom? Um, But if I am espousing any ideas that are Christian or Buddhist, for example, well, then I am I'm marginalizing the Muslims or the atheist. Right. Like if I even use a word like transition, suggesting that there is a transition that's possible. What about the materialists that believe that the lights go out? Like I, I need to make space for everybody to have a belief system and for everybody to be in the question about what their belief system is. But the minute I say this is what I believe, that creates a strange standard that then other people try to meet. Yeah. Is that clear? Yeah, totally clear. Yeah. I really appreciate that frame. My pleasure. When, when I do some of this, my version of work, I think you do, um, where we overlap maybe or hold the space. I think specifically for me, it's this kind of um, being with the magnitude of the dying or the, (laughs) sorry. No need to apologize, Ned. The grief, you know, the heartbreak. Um, There is both the knowing that there is maybe only a needed room for it. So the being with it and knowing that that's maybe the biggest offering, the listening, the witnessing, like you did with this woman, mm-hmm. it's like she needed you to just kind of keep giving her a chance to say all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this feeling that I have sometimes where you leave a space or even like you're going into a space and you feel the the hopelessness the the meaninglessness the how can this how can i even help how how can i and it, this might be connected to the culture of fix it yeah but i'm wondering how you deal with a moment like that if you have them i mean do you ever have do you ever have what i'm what i'm quite literally going through as we speak which is that like grief over oh is it enough like can you do enough you know yeah yeah um i'm kind of big picture in this spot right now And it's not a fun answer, but it's nihilism. (laughs) Like, does any of this matter at all? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay, good. You're talking my language. (laughs) Does any of this matter? Does any of this matter? If there isn't anything to do that makes the weight of this any less for the individuals that are walking through it, and those of us that are trying to make some meaning and purpose out of everyday life, um, I think nine months into the pandemic and into um, this, you know, pseudo quarantine life, those questions are really coming up because it's like, what is the point mm-hmm. of any of it? What is the point? It hurts. It's painful. Yes, of course. Moments of beauty and love and joy and surrender and like beautiful moments of serendipity. But big picture. This is painful. And some of these things are so crushingly painful to me. Um, 
you know, I, I take a lot of baths <laughs> and I just spend five days staring at a fire, um, with my friend in Palm Springs and, you know, just constantly trying to reset the nervous system and, um, remember the good and the beauty and the, like what it feels like when somebody's heart is so open and mine can meet them there. Um, yeah. Otherwise, nihilism, straight up. <laughs> the touchstone, <laughs> the great touchstone of nihilism. <laughs> what other what other touchstones, without categorizing any others, because I like the touchstones of nihilism and fire and water, um, what other touchstones do you go to when you need someone like you're being for others, which I feel like you can own and do, you are being a touchstone for others or, and, and maybe that word's strong, but it is the touchstone of listening, the touchstone of witnessing, of making space, but also wisdom and information. Um, what are you, what other touchstones might you go to when you're feeling that? Mm. I think I'm finally getting to the place where I'm learning how to properly care for myself. And that might change in 10 years. It might be like, girl, you knew nothing then. But at least at this juncture, I'm learning more to identify my needs and express them as succinctly and clearly as possible and without feeling any apology for it, you know, um, uh, checking in constantly also to make sure that it's not, I'm not having an emotional response out of my own wounding. I'm looking at my shadow self. I'm looking at the things in me that make me want to fix or make me want to make something better or feel powerless when I can't just spending a lot of time with, with this, this person and all of her stories. Um, cause I bring all that to the table along with the listening and with the, with the strong back, soft front nature of the work. Um, yeah, so there's, there's ritual things like baths and foot soaks. I love a good foot soak. It's so grounding to me and staring at the fire and spending time in quiet and nature and exercise and meditation. But there's also like getting really quiet and thinking about what are my, what do I need in this moment? Not my wants, not the pretty cute little things, but what do I need? You could support this podcast by becoming a part of our community on Patreon. That's right. It's true. For as little as $1 a month, think about it this way. Would you, after experiencing the time you've shared with me here, want to buy me a coffee and sit down with me to hang out? Maybe two coffees. Well, an easy way to do that in a kind of metaphor, I guess, is by going to patreon.com and committing $1 a month, a minimum of $1 a month. And that 
addition uh, or the math of that uh, multiplied by 12 months equals $12. And that's about two cups of coffee, depending on where you live. If you're living in San Francisco, it's half a cup of coffee. But anyway, that'll be your way and, and our way of being together like we're having coffee. And every time I see your $1 come through, it'll be a reminder that we're together sipping our hot drink and being in community. Is it worth it? Is what you've experienced here or why you keep coming back worth going to Patreon and becoming a new patron? Please do. And per usual, even easier is to go into your app, whatever way you're listening to this podcast, and take the five seconds it takes to rate and review the show. I cannot tell you enough how much that matters for helping the podcast get out into the world and get more and more listeners. So if you're going to do that right now, thank you so much in advance. And if you've done it already, thank you so much for doing that. If you're like, well, what else can I do? Send the show to a friend. If this meant anything to you at all, take one second to copy the link from this episode and send it over to a friend. And if you're happy with what we're doing here at You're Going to Die, you can just tell people, hey, check out You're Going to Die. Google You're Going to Die. Find us on social media. It's real easy to connect up and we're doing a lot that can be connected to, including a lot of things online. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, by the way, so all these things that you do support more of what we do in the world. You, you wrote on your website, you just say, I'm an attorney, death doula, attorney, adjunct professor, ordained minister. But in the form, I don't know where else you said this, but in the form you said recovering lawyer. And so can we just start there and then here, you know, because I want you to be able to share that part of the story in a way that feels kind of fresh and new and only as much as you want. So let's go with that. The practice of law crushed my soul. Granted, I was doing social justice work. So I was doing all the supposedly feel good and good for the world and good for other people. And I was at legal aid and I have, I still have $100,000 in student loan debt. Um, But I went to law school in an effort to like do something good for humanity and affect some change somehow. And it wasn't working. I just kept coming up against systems that were not designed to support the people that needed it the most. And it was crushing to me. It's crushing. So much fighting. And I'd always be like, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And uh, it just got to the point where all the good that I wanted to do wasn't happening. And the clients kept coming back. I was doing domestic violence work at some point. Clients kept coming back. The laws weren't changing to protect them better. Um, Family systems were desperately broken. Children were getting stuck in the cycle of violence. This was just, I I can't be this close to this anymore. And I developed a depression. And I think that's when the recovery started is because I put down that thing that said, fight the man, then just girl, take a look at yourself. Um, And through that depression is eventually what led me to Cuba, where I met this woman who had uterine cancer on a bus. And we had a nice, long, juicy conversation. And I really started to think about 
what I'm doing here, well, what she was doing here, because we were talking about her death. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to die, too. And then <laughs> from there, what am I doing here? And then from there, well, we should be talking about this somehow, because I think this is important. And lo and behold, it is. And lo and behold, other people want to talk about it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Which has been so fun. Yeah. Yeah. So then not long after that, I came back to the States and then my brother-in-law got ill and from diagnosis until death was only six months. Mm. And I was with him and my sister and my niece for the last two months of his life. And it was difficult. And um, there were parts that were fun and interesting and felt more meaningful because they were limited. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he died. Mm. He died. And it still blows my mind that he died. I mean, mm. seven years later, I'm still like, what? Like he's not here. Like what? Mm. I can't believe that actually happened. Yeah. 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 So that's how I got into death work. And, um, you know, I got pretty clear at that point. When I was leaving my sister, I was with them for two months. And after he died, we planned his funeral um, to coincide with his, what would have been his 44th birthday. And then I needed to leave to go take care of myself for a while. And I was trying to like put on a little post-it note, all the little things that my sister needed to do in order to wrap up his affairs, like all the little things that were still hanging out there, floating out there. And one led to another, led to another. And I was trying to put it on a little post-it note. That was not working. So I kept writing more and more. Then there was like a whole file and I was getting stuck in so many places and mm. couldn't figure out answers. And I returned to this, this question that had been on my heart through the entire process of his death. Where is the person who has this answer? I just need somebody who can sit here who is knowledgeable and compassionate and kind and like, and say, oh, this is how you do this to walk me through this. Somebody who has their head on straight because I was grieving and there wasn't anybody. And I was so, I was angry. I was frustrated. I was sad. I was sad for her. I was sad for us. Uh, and so I decided that I could be that person. And that was the way that I could enter this death conversation. And so going with grace was born directly out of that frustration and, um, and like soft, soft, soft spot for other people walking through it. You know, it felt so isolating, um, but I also had some great knowledge that a bunch of other people died that day and the two just couldn't, they didn't mm -hmm. match up together. Mm -hmm. You know, grief tells that lie that, you know, you're the only person who understands. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. It's such a, it's so isolated, you know, it's so lonely, so loss that that sneaks in. Yeah. It's like, well, if I'm lonely, I, there's no one else. Yeah. It's just like, it's embedded in that. And, uh, it takes something to get, um, connected to others where you realize, Oh, I'm not. And, and my loss is unique. You know, it's like, it doesn't take yes. that away. Not at all. The relationship was unique. Um, and such a loss is going to be unique. What are some of the things that help you can feel connected to others after your mother's death? Mm. Thank you uh, for asking. Um, the earliest versions of that for me was going to a bereavement group. Yeah. I didn't really have, cause I was only 26. I didn't have a lot of community that, that I didn't have any community that really knew how to be in that conversation. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had to seek it out. And that was a big deal. I was in LA working at a toy company and uh, I just happened to start traveling internationally. So there was a way that being alone on these long flights to Hong Kong gave me room to be that alone. Like mm-hmm. we feel we are and there's a way we deserve it. There's a way yes. you just like have to be alone, like, you know, to be with that, that loss that's just yours. But then I was able to afford because of that job that I ultimately left and left to in a way end up doing what I, what I'm doing now and being on this call with you is like connected all the way back to that. Mm. But during that time I needed, I needed to have some kind of security and that job let me start going to a bereavement group and the, the, the power of being with other people that lost their parents Mm. uh, for a year or so was huge for me and undeniably important in my grief process. And, and, um, and really main, was mainly the thing, really, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that helped mm-hmm. during that time. Being others. actually with others. Yeah that, yeah, that had their version of the loss. And, and so then I can see all the way through to the open mic in yeah. San Francisco about 10 years ago, um, where I still needed that. It's like when you talk about your brother-in-law, it... it I wonder when do you get to be with him still? Mm. And my niece, mm. my niece, she's eleven. Uh, she was born on my birthday. Wow! Yeah, she was born on my birthday, and they were in New York, and I was in LA, so I took a red eye as soon as my sister was in labor and delivery. And she was also premature, so of all the days in the world to come, she chose my birthday. So I took a red eye, got off the plane, made it to the hospital, and he was downstairs. My brother-in-law was downstairs waiting for me, and he was just overjoyed. I mean, bubbly and downright giddy. And he was six six and like probably two fifty at the time, so a big guy, like bouncing, like skipping into mm. the elevator. Um, and I was actually just thinking about this story, the day of her birth and how, what a great moment it was for all of us, but he and I were particularly, uh, close and, uh, full of hope and, um, as was my sister, as was my sister. But I remember Peter most on that day. Peter. Peter. Yeah. His name is Peter. And yeah, she's, she was four when he died. I got to spend a lot of time with her cause she was in the hospital. Her, I'm sorry. My sister was in the hospital a lot with my brother-in-law. And so I was left to care for my niece or at least handle her everyday things. And that was such a sweet, delicate time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And through his pictures, I don't have enough of them. I'm still looking for them. I don't know where they all went. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I know what, what you mean. <laughs> Where are they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk about as much as you feel comfortable about what that was like sitting at his bedside when he was dying and what it, how you knew then to be there and maybe how you know to be in that specific spot now? Mm-hmm. Oh, um, 
you know, at the time I wouldn't, I don't know what it was that fueled me because I packed up a little rolly suitcase to take. And I thought I was just going for a few days. I really don't know what I thought I was going for, but that turned into two months, which meant coats and new shoes and exercise clothes and whatever else, just so I could have a life there of some sort. And in, in the, I'd say the weeks leading up to his death, there was such a flurry of activity Um, the only real being time would be late at night when Mm -hmm. my niece was asleep and nobody needed anything from me anymore. And I would just watch the snow falling out the window or talk to my boyfriend who was living in Germany at the time and, you know, just get a chance to like connect again with myself because all day long was errands and doctor's reports and, you know, exchange the pajamas and pick up prescriptions for his parents and drop my niece off and pack this for lunch and get these grocery things and bring this to my sister and just busy, 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 busy. Um, but the, the very, very quiet moments right before his death were the ones that I'll probably remember with the most fondness in a strange way. Um, because they were absolutely still and quiet. We all were, we all, I think had the knowledge that we were standing right at the, at the doorway, um, of existence as his body, he was doing the chain stokes breathing pattern. So the breathing pattern had changed and we were watching. It just was kind of like a machine and the space in between breaths was getting longer and longer. And we were literally counting his breaths and hanging on the breath. Um, so it was a a place of absolute presence. Mm -hmm. Um, and, like awe and reverence for this really weird ride of life. And then life was gone. Just like that. Um, you know, to this day, I've, I've been with other people as they've died, but to this day that still hits me as like the most, it's so profound and so simple all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I started yeah. talking. I didn't remember what you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you totally did. Okay. You totally answered my question. Okay. Um, I'm just like just weeping over here. <laughs> um, when when did you cry last? How was that for you? Like good cry. Mm, a couple of days ago. Mm. Yeah, a couple of days ago. My primary partner and I are splitting up. Hmm. And I'm experiencing a lot of grief around it. And I wept. Mm-hmm. I wept. We've had a brief and terse phone conversation. There's still so much love there, but the practical parts of being together are challenging. And it's just like, but I wish that love was enough. That's what that cry was about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I wept. I, I also I shed some tears this morning, but they were more sweet tears. I was watching a video of a guy on the internet whose friends gave him some glasses. He's colorblind, and his friends gave him some glasses so that he could see color. And he was just tripping out. Oh, and, you yeah, know, they were like totally. sweet, happy tears. Have you seen it? <laughs> no, send it to me. Oh, I love great. those videos. Though it's like I watched one recently of a kid who. It, it's kind of hilarious because I think he kind of freaks out, but it's a baby who's hearing his parents for the first time. He gets like these special hearing aids yeah. and just his face. He's like, what the hell is going oh, on? No. And it's just like you do. You cry and you laugh. It's just like so much. That's good. Yeah. The opposite of nihilism. 
Totally. <laughs> or just like a wonderful boat in the midst of nihilism. Yes. You're like, this is a good ride. Yeah. It's still in the nihilism sea, but yes. it's a good ride. Yes. Yes. That's yes. great. What do you know comes over from before, though, other than just you're wanting to help people and, and make a change and make a difference? And, and like, I think I heard you say in a video, you're just like, I want to f- flip this system upside down. Like, this is not, this is wrong. This doesn't work. Here's my way of, of, of doing that flip. Yeah. Activism. What comes over from before? Activism. Um, mm-hmm. Activism, big time. Like, you know, this, this work now looks different, but at, at its core, it's still like, hold on, this doesn't work. We're failing humans. Let's do better for humans. Um, and so that's a certain strong through line. Uh, another, I'd say, practicing law in that capacity was a really good training ground for this, which is around boundaries and um, the distinction between empathy and compassion. Because, uh, let's mm. say, I started my legal career at South Brooklyn Legal Services in the HIV and AIDS unit. I did HIV and AIDS work before I went to law school. And so it was like a very natural fit. Mm-hmm. But I had a client, I was 24 years old. I had a client who was 26, a black woman who had a six-year-old son who had AIDS. And I was working with her on a housing case. Yet I did everything she needed me to. I mean, I was helping her son tie his shoes and figure out where her prescriptions were cheaper than other places and helping her pick up her groceries. And I just had no boundaries whatsoever because I kept saying, oh my God, if that were me, or I can't imagine if it were me, I'd want Mm -hmm. somebody to do this for me. And if it were me, and if it were me and a supervisor, I wish I could remember her name. It was something Schneider, maybe Cynthia Schneider sat me down and she said, but it's not you. It's not you. And so you have to find a way to draw a line. Otherwise, you're going to burn yourself out. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand at the time. I was like, well, aren't I being a good advocate? But I wasn't because I wasn't taking care of myself while I was trying to care for her. And also, I wasn't actually checking in with what her needs were. I was perceiving them for her. I was saying, if it were me, this is what I would want, rather than saying, well, what does she actually need? Uh, so that was one of the first places I started to practice mm-hmm. it. But it's really important in the practice of death because, you know, I don't, empathy says, I know what you're experiencing or I can imagine what your experience is. I can put myself in your shoes, but I don't know what it's like to have an illness that I know is going to end my life. I don't have any lived experience that's similar to that. I don't know what that's like. I try to imagine it. And by doing so, I'm not giving the person that I'm sitting with enough space to bring to me what their actual experience is. And so I have to put that aside and say, no matter what you might need, even though I can't imagine what your need is, I can get in the trench with you. And that's the key difference. That's something that I had to learn how to do in the practice of law that I bring over here. Is that mm. clear? Yeah, totally. Okay, yeah, and, I, and good for me to hear, really. Okay, wonderful. I'm glad it's useful. Yeah, I, you know, biggest yeah. work. Yeah, I, I can see why. I mean, it, it is like you said, it's the empath. It's like, oh, I can feel all this. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's a risk that you end up making it about you. I mean, yes. it's just like that's what being the empath is feeling the things. And then suddenly where's the line between that you're feeling it and you as a separate being that's not starting to place stuff on top of or strain yourself and drain yourself, exhaust yourself, um, putting yourself in positions where. It's like the the airplane uh, metaphor, grabbing the oxygen mask and putting it on you first, 
and then the person that needs you to do it for them. Yes. And that if I'm just like sitting there just trying to get that mask on right on the person next to me, slowly I'm, I'm running out of oxygen. Right. And I, I feel like it is good for me to hear because that, that risk, it's always there. And it yeah. takes so much time and, and kind of endless effort, I, I would say. Not, not effort in a way that's like exhausting, but it just takes that intention of taking good care of yourself and drawing those lines and boundaries. So yeah, I really do get it. And, uh, and, and it, it's good to hear you put it into words. This comes up often when people are trying to make, I'm using air quotes again, small talk. And they're like, so what do you do? And I'm like, Oh God. <laughs> 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 you know, in the same way, I I'm like, totally relate. what do we do? <laughs> We're at a party or, oh my gosh, even worse. We're on a long haul flight. You know, we're taking a transcontinental 16 totally. hour journey together. Are you sure you want to go there? Um, yeah, that's fun. I certainly love it when somebody leans all the way in, mm-hmm. you know, when we're like in line at CVS and something brings us to that point And then they're like, oh, really? Well, what about this? Mm -hmm. I love that moment, too. Me, too. Because sometimes I might not want to go there, although 98% Mm -hmm. of the time I do. But every once in a while, I might not want to go there myself. And then when somebody leans in, then I'm, you know, reinvigorated by it. What what are you still getting surprised about doing all this work? What still surprises you? Mm, That's a great question. Uh, I think it's a two-part answer. First is my unending enthusiasm for it. That surprises the stuff out of me. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. traditionally, I get real bored by something. I decided I was going to crochet. I made seven stitches and I was done with it. Like, this, is, we're over it. We're over it. I mean, I bought needles. I bought yes. yarn. <laughs> seven stitches in. This so, is not for that's me. That's good. Yeah. I love the crochet. That's like the, the best thing you could have said is this is an example of something that I absolutely got bored of. Yeah. Quick. Quick. It took all 13 minutes and half a YouTube video. Um, so my endless interest and enthusiasm for it certainly yeah. surprises me. But next also how uh, deeply hidden this conversation is in the individual psyche. We're all having it on some level, but some people just need a lot more space and time to get to it. But mm. I think we're all going to get to it at some point. So that was my conversation with Alua Arthur. And if you want to find out more about what Alua and her team are up to, go to their website, goingwithgrace.com. There's a lot of stuff there. I mean, it's pretty wondrous, actually. The videos and uh, social media and programming and articles, lots of good stuff, lots of good stuff in the world. But um, one thing I want to mention in particular, both because I think it's a wonderful offering, a wonderful special offering for anybody who's going to die, um, but also because Alua feels the same way, is that you check out Going With Grace's end-of-life training. And not only 
might you check that out for yourself? They're offering a way for people to support those in need who might want to do the training but can't afford it. So their donorship program allows you to directly support training new death doulas and bring additional support and resources to people at the end of their lives. And that specific link to go to is going with grace forward slash training details forward slash. I think you can just go to the website though and find the little button at the top that just says end of life training. So definitely check that out whether you want it or you want to support someone else getting it. Nick Jaina. Hey. Oh, you just walking you just walking along. Did you know I was recording right now? Yeah, I was just passing by, heard you talking. Oh, I had this, that is this so... tray of muffins. I thought you might like some. Oh, wow. Let me see. Yeah. Oh, yeah, carrot. That's Yeah. That's uh, that's good. It's carrot cakey. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> boy. It's so nice to see someone in person. Yeah, good. To, yeah, almost good to, like it's <laughs> not really possible. Yeah, right. And just then we nice. just have to pretend that that's happening. Yeah, right. Gosh, what a world! Nice to have you come by. How are you? I feel like I've been constantly. Maybe you feel like this too. Like the last six months, I've been like thinking I'm getting on top of a wave, but the wave keeps moving forward and cresting and, and crashing. And I'm like, still like getting on top of it. And, it, and always the illusion is like, I'm just about on top of this wave, meaning like the mountain of stuff to catch up on from like all the disruption and, and everything that's gone on in the last year. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm getting on top of a wave, but I felt like that for the last two months. Yeah. I, I do relate to that. <laughs> um, and I'm glad that you, uh, I'm glad that you, uh, well, no, what I want to say is that I feel like even being in the wave or able to get on the wave compared to say five months ago for you is a different kind of experience during this pandemic. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah. I was just floating in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. The water, that's just sunburned. Keep the, <laughs> keep the ocean metaphor. Like those New Yorker um, cartoons where the clothes are all raggedy and yes. I just have a beard and I'm just giving up. Yeah. Holding onto a volleyball. Just I guess floating. I'm not sure what I do when I, when I am on top of the wave, mm. I guess then I have to surf down it. Yeah. I mean, it's like inevitable that there will be some kind of crashing or riding down or, slowing down, calming, um, but that the there's the duality of of the high of being up there and the activity and the getting doneness of that. Um, I don't relate at all. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you in the ocean? <laughs> What's funny, I have been feeling a little bit of an ocean metaphor, and I, I talked about this in the intro a little bit, this kind of digging out of a dark place. And what I've realized this week is that I dug myself out up onto a beach. Oh. And so that's my metaphor is that I, I made it to that sprawl and I'm not, I'm not in the water. I'm still kind of like got some trepidation. Um, is it a but deserted island in the middle of the ocean? It's it's not an island, but it's deserted. It's a deserted. <laughs> there's no absolutely no one, no one there except you and carrot muffins. It turns out. <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks for meeting me here. I guess you got off your wave. Wow, isn't it funny that we did actually meet each other? Um, you on your your wave crest and me walking down the beach. Hmm. I wonder if people are doing this now where they do Zoom talks and they just kind of role play like casual yeah, encounters, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
I, I bet they are. I wonder if there'd be a, a way to measure that. Do you want to talk reviews? Is there there a, one review I saw that I think could be fun to? <laughs> Yeah, um, there's this one from, I guess the name is Rest a While. Um, mm-hmm. Subject is the best place on the internet most of the time. <laughs> That's a good way to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if I read the whole title. Like, my phone didn't give me all this. Like, the best place is all that I read. And now the best I love place it. on the internet most of the time. <laughs> I wonder what times it's not. Yeah, or is there like it's still on the level, but there's things that surpass it suddenly, or does it get really bad sometimes, and then you don't want to go there? Which I really feel like you're going to die. Might that might be the case? It's funny because the internet isn't like a a time sensitive, you know, it's not like a store that closes or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're feeling chapped and dry through and through, you need to come here and sit and listen. It will be like the good kind of rain, the soft kind. That just makes your hair look better. I guarantee you, you will sigh deeply at the end and sleep better that night. Your soul will be shiny and your heart will be soft. It's my favorite place to rest and remember what it's like when all is good. Hard and sad and challenging and hopeless feeling at times, but all good. Was this written by John Steinbeck? <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> I know. Well, that was really nice to listen. You got a great voice too. Thanks, I don't know man. if I've ever told you that. It's a good. It's a good voice, and it went real well <laughs> with those words. I mean, what else can we say? Good. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's the way to write a review. I mean, just just write impressionistically about how it makes you feel. You know, mm-hmm. don't have to be all formal or proper. Just just go with your feelings. You know. Yeah, that's a that's a that's an invitation again to all of you listeners. Go on Apple Podcasts, and if you don't already have a, a handle, use this as a fun opportunity to create a handle that's creatively, um, mortally conscious, and have some fun with it, and have some fun with the title, and have some fun with the words. But uh, also, if you just hate the podcast and you somehow made it this far into an episode, we want to hear from you too. I, I don't want to encourage bad things said, but I'm sort of looking forward to that review. It's inevitable. You you always have this need to talk I about know. the negative potential of, I of just these things. Want, I want to speak to the part of the person <laughs> out there that does feel that way and let them know that it's okay. Yeah. As the editor, I still might just cut those parts out because <laughs> All right, all right, all right. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna have the last word, Nick. You have the last word this round. Uh, another thing that you can do is send us a recording, email to pod at yg2d.com. What I would love. This is me, the the uh, editor, producer, and uh, four season to- total soundscaping. I don't know what that means. <laughs> You could Google it in like two seconds and no, then you know, the and everybody is else not is a, like, the internet is not a good place right now and I will not go on it. <laughs> is it that time of day when the internet is bad? <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> the, the shops have closed down and it's getting dangerous out on the internet. Um, anyway, uh, record a pleasant sound in your environment. It could be a, a voice is singing like wind chimes, uh, a cat, children playing something. Is send it to us. Like we like to make these little neditations, we call them, where Ned speaks over a soundscape that I curate, and it's nice to work with some real organic sound. And we would mm-hmm. love it if it came from somebody who's listening to this podcast. And 
just anything, you know, a place where you meditate, a place where you feel safe, um, whatever it is, even if it seems small and insignificant, you know, Chelsea sent us some sounds from the chocolate factory, like the almond sorter that we put into Ned's meditation and, uh, and, you know, we will make it work. So email us something pod at YG2D.com. And thank you all for listening. It's real nice for, I think I can speak for both of us to get to be in your ear like this and do this creative work with YG2D. So until next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.